Good evening, everyone. Will you welcome a friend of us all, the Cap Club stalwart, Jason Barnard. And the truly wonderful and our new best friend, Mr. John Altman. John, uh, thank you so much for coming to Pontefract and the Cat Club. Um, yeah, thank, thank you. Um, My pleasure. I wanted to start off with um, one of your early groups. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, there is a Cat Club link, given we've got the Sunday showdown with Chas Janko. But in that band also was uh, Pete Van Hook, the very famous drummer. Yeah. However, the reason I mention it is because the the album that we've got here is George Michael's Faith. But mm -hmm. in that early band, you were rehearsing at, at George Michael's uh, dad's restaurant, weren't you? No, we were rehearsing at Pete Van Hook's father's pub, oh. which was next oh. door, George ah. Michael's father's restaurant. Right. Ah. And also in the band was Rick Parnell, who was the drummer of Spinal Tap. Wow. And me, and a very good bass player, John Rose. And uh, we practiced there frequently. And young George, who would have been about five, I guess, would sit outside listening. And when we were, did um, Kissing a Fool, he said in the middle of the afternoon, you inspired me to take up music. And I didn't know what he was talking about. Because I, obviously I didn't remember him. I, I remember the restaurant because we, we used to eat there sometimes, you know, after rehearsing. But um, I, I had no idea that that was George Michael. There's no bigger praise for one of the biggest icons of, of music. Yeah. When I say I had no idea it was George Michael, I did know that his father had that restaurant, but I didn't know the connection that he had heard us rehearse. But he reeled off all the names, you know, of the band. So he, he, so he was quite young at the time. He would have been about five, I guess. Wow. Five or six. But he said that's what made him want to play music. He must have really absorbed. Yeah. Well, it was a very good band. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> if I say so myself. No, it was very interesting because I, they were all at the same school. I wasn't. I was at a different school. But I'd started playing in bands when I was 13. So I'd, in North London, I would go from band to band. And there weren't many sax players in, in rock and roll. Or, you know, the, the, a lot of the young sax players wanted to play jazz. And I, I played jazz as well. But I liked the blues scene and the rock scene. So I, I would join bands, you know. And um, when I joined Chaz, we... Although we were like 16, 17, we were supporting at school dances like Jeff Beck's group with Rod Stewart, and we were blowing them off stage. Wow. And, I, I, you know, people don't believe it, but Pete Van Hook was one of the best drummers anywhere. Chaz was a fantastic, and still is, fantastic guitarist and keyboard player. I wasn't too bad, I guess. <laughs> I, I held my own. And Rick fronted the band. He later became... He wasn't playing drums in those days. Or well, he was playing drums, because his dad was Jack Barnell. But he wasn't playing, like, in bands particularly. But he went on to, to be a great drummer as well. We lost him last year. Mm. But, um, so it was, it was interesting. But we, 
we would get gigs usually supporting someone else or local youth clubs. And out of all the bands that I played in, somebody went on to do something else. You know, so um, the drummer of my first band formed a group called Sin, who morphed into Yes. Yeah. So Chris Squire would yeah. hang out with us at our gigs, you know, and then occasionally we'd play together. The next band, two of the guys joined Elton John. The next band, Paul Kossoff was, was there. Wow. The next band, Kim Rue, who wrote Walking on Sunshine, yeah. was Soft on boys. guitar. The Soft Boys, yeah. And Katrina and the Waves. Katrina and the Waves. So it was an incredibly fertile time around that part of northwest London. And um, not only were we playing, but we were going to hear the bands of the day. So, you know, the Fleetwood Macs and the John Mayles, Blues Breakers and Cream and... So you, you, you've said that you were at Led Zeppelin's first ever gig, weren't you? My ears first. still hurt. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was in the upstairs room, but it was really no bigger than this. It was um, Kluke's Clique, which was an amazing club in West Hampstead. And the thing people don't realise is today, of course, if you wanted to go and see Fleetwood Mac, you would go to a pub, you'd go to the upstairs room or the back room, there was no dressing room, there was, you know, the band went to the bar at the interval, there were no minders, no backstage passes, no managers saying you can't come in here, no limos waiting outside. So the first few times I ran across Jimi Hendrix were at the Golders Green Refectory and uh, pub, uh, back room of a pub in Edgware, you know. So it, it was extraordinary. There were, there were all these little venues that the big name bands, even then they were getting a big name, but they would still play these, these venues all the time. But it gets even more extraordinary, doesn't it? Because you, were, you, you, you played a lot with Peter Green, didn't you? Yeah. Well, the, the interesting thing was you would go to a club, and I would take my saxophone. <laughs> Why, I don't know, but I, I would. I'd, I'd take it along, and I'd say, do you mind if I play? And they'd always say yes. Wow. And you might get one number. Um, if they like you, they'll keep you. And then they'll say, oh, we're playing again next week at the so-and-so, come along there. And, or my friend's band are playing next week, why don't you come and play with them? So that's how I got in with them. And I would also go to the speakeasy, which was the, the place to be at the time. And when I was playing a lot with Peter Green, we went together. And this one particular night, we had a jam session, and Jimi Hendrix was playing bass. So people, <laughs> people say to me, did you play with Jimi Hendrix? And I always gloss over it, because I was on my first date with a young lady... And um, they had a restaurant, which was over there. The stage was here. And I'd, I'd ordered a steak, and it was ready. And this girl came out and went, your food's ready. <laughs> so about two choruses into the first tune, I put the sax down and went off and I had my steak. It's extraordinary. Amazing. You were also quite close to um, Nick Drake and John Martin, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. Again, what I discovered quite early on, because I, I love music, I, mm. 
my whole family were in music and I'd grown up with literally family friends were Nat King Cole and Dean Martin and Judy Garland. They they came over to the house, didn't they? Yes, yeah. Well, Jack Benny used to come round and he put... um, (laughs) No, this is true. He he, he put black boot polish on his bolt patch and it would rub off on the anti-macassars. And my mother would go mad because it wouldn't come off. She'd say, Jack Benny's coming behind the anti-macassars. But... um, no, so uh, I've forgotten why I brought that up, actually. <laughs> Just <laughs> keep did, where, talking, John, keep talking. Where did it come from? <laughs> what, were we, what were we saying? Well, I was going to mean to ask, there's an incredible moment in Hidden Man where you, you're there with John Martin, I think. Oh, yeah. And you're, you're, you're talking to Nick Drake and asking him not to give up live gigs, weren't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. We played at um, it, it was a col- London University College called Westfield College. It's not there anymore. In Hampstead. And on the bill, it was the World Cup final day, 1970. And on the bill were the Humble Bums, which was Billy Connolly and Jerry Rafferty, Stefan Grossman, John Martin, Nick Drake, and a young bloke called Elton John. Not not bad, not bad. Got no idea what happened to him, (laughs) you know. So Nick went on first, and they even had a stripper with... tassels (laughs) tassels <laughs> it's a sort of students union you know rag week or whatever and Nick Drake played three tunes staring at the floor with an audience completely disinterested and he walked off and said that's it I'm not going to gig ever again I've, I've had it and John Martin and I I was there with John talked to him and said oh you've got to keep playing you've got to keep no no I've had enough I've don't want to do it anymore. And next week he walked off a Ralph McTell gig, and that was the last time he appeared in public, I think. Wow. Extraordinary. But the reason I brought that up was I, I was playing saxophone, and I decided that if I took up the flute, I could play with a lot of the folk scene. I don't like to call it folk scene, because it wasn't people with fingers in their ears singing about trawlers, you know. It was... <laughs> It was the John Martin Singer-songwriter. Yeah, Bridget St. John, yeah. those Kevin Ayers, those sort of people. And then if I took up clarinet, I could do all the Dixieland jazz gigs, which I started doing. So I was basically playing something, somewhere, every day of the week, wow. which is extraordinary, really. And it was so fertile because there were so many clubs. You could go into the West End of London, leave the car or the train or whatever you, you took, and go to six different places, you know, and play in each one of them. In fact, on Sundays, I used to go to Studio 51 in the afternoon where they had the blues session, and you would get Fleetwood Mac. I mean, it's only two years since the Rolling Stones were resident there. Yeah. Um, then I would go on to the 100 Club and play with someone else. Then I'd go round the corner to Bungie's and play flute with Bridget St. John. Then I'd go up the road somewhere else. And this is all in one night, you know, one afternoon, evening. And I was able to do that because I was on a full grant at university. So I didn't need to join a band. When, when the grant was worth something. Yeah, well, it was, it was literally a full grant. Yeah. So I didn't need to be paid to play. And, you know, most people who took up music at that time wanted to do a regular gig. 
that that was you know the big thing. Oh, I've got a tour with Arthur Connolly, or I've got a summer season at Butlins. It was just never something I wanted to do. So it, this is an impossible job, uh, <laughs> trying to cover just a snapshot of it, which is why I, I highly recommend Hidden Man. So when when did um, Eric Idle, Neil Innes, and Ruttles before the Monty Python come and come into your life? In 1970, uh, my best friend at the time was a fantastic guitar player called Ollie Halsall. Brilliant. Who was a brilliant, probably one of the best guitarists ever in this country. And he had been in a band called Pato. Yeah. And they'd broken up and he joined a group called Tempest, which was John Heisman, uh, Alan Holdsworth and Ollie on guitars and Mark Clark on bass. And they had their debut gig at the Marquee. And I, I drove up there. I drove out. Ollie didn't drive. I drove him to the gig. And I, we went to the bar. I, th I think the, the band was so loud anyway, we had to get to the bar. And there were Neil Innes and John Gorman, yeah. Mike McCartney. And... So, was that Grimm's? Yeah. Yeah. I think Andy Roberts was there, actually. Yeah, he was he, in Grimm's. He probably would have been. But they were just hanging out, listening to the band. And we started talking, and Ollie came over at the interval, and he said, um, oh, we're recording tomorrow at uh, Manfred Mann Studio, the workhouse, uh, with uh, Monty Python. Do you want to come along wow. and play? Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is October 73. So this must have been peak Python. They were huge. 50 years ago. Yeah. Well, the thing, the thing then was, there were no home videos so if yeah. you missed an episode, the only way you could catch up was buying a record. Yeah. So their records went, went gold, you know. So I, they made an album called Matching Tie and Handkerchief. And I went along to play some sax. And all the Pythons were there except for John. And Neil had written, I hate to say it, but it was a Gary Glitter spoof. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was popular in those days. So. <laughs> so they said to me, look, we don't really need saxophone, but we do need moronic vocals and hand claps, you know. So, so I am singing. Uh, I can hear myself above everyone else on the record. Um, and somehow that was the start, you know, and Neil then called me to do some records with him. Then we did the Innis Book of Records. Yeah. Then we did the Ruttles. Then we did uh, Life of Brian. Then we did Secret Policeman's Ball. Wow. Then it went on and on and on and on. And, you know, I'm still connected to them now, which is amazing. Yeah. 50 it, years later. It was, was it Terry Gilliam who actually labelled you the hidden man? It was. He drew, he drew me as the hidden man. Because he said, you're oh, always... Oh, he drew you? Oh, yeah, there's a drawing of me in, wow. in the book. Wow. And, um, no, he said, you're always behind the scenes. Nobody knows who on earth you are, and, but you're always there. <laughs> okay, I'll take it. I'll take you back to Life of Brian. Yeah. And always look on the bright side of life. Mm -hmm. So, was it Eric Idle? Who, Eric so, he, he brought the song to you, but it wasn't how you hear it now, was no. it? No. It was just guitar and voice. And to be honest with you, the other guys weren't impressed. Wow. They really weren't. I mean, Michael Palin was... Oh, it's, oh, it's, oh, oh. Don't like it. 
you know, John Cleese, what's the point of that, you know? And I rang Terry Jones and said, how much do you need for the film? It's about 20 seconds. So I rang Eric and said, he wants 20 seconds. I won't tell you what Eric said. Um, but we went and did it. And I think it was our joint idea that we did it as a sort of Hollywood musical spoof. So we recorded the whole track. And um, the whistling was Fred Tomlinson singers and myself. And again, I can hear myself. Wow. loud and clear on the track. I can't do it now, but I had a really good whistle in the, those days. And bizarrely, it was the day that Keith Moon passed away. Wow. And he was supposed to have several parts in Life of Brian. Wow. The, um, a lot of the parts that Michael Palin played were written for, for Keith. Wow. This is extraordinary, really. And I... <laughs> I used to play at the speakeasy, as I said, and I, I used to, oh, I still do, I played with my eyes shut, but I had to stop because if Keith Moon was in the club, he would come up and pull the saxophone out of my mouth <laughs> while I was soloing. And I, I said, Keith, please don't do that, but he kept doing it, you know, <laughs> make sure my eyes were shut and boom, you know, ah, you're going to break my teeth. You always had to worry about Keith when he put his tooth in <laughs> because you knew he, there was trouble looming. <laughs> you know? But he, he would go to audition for jobs as a chartered accountant and he'd go in a suit with his tooth in, you know, and they'd offer him the job and then he'd start twitching. Very, very naughty boy. He was a very naughty boy. <laughs> so we've got a clip next, which I think was Top of the Pops in 1991, and, and you're, on, you're on this, aren't you? I'm on piano for some reason. Right. We're, um, I'll tell you what happened. Yeah. Uh, the football crowds got hold of Bright Side of Life. I think originally, I think it was the... Um, during the Falklands War, the, when the ship sank... They were all in the lifeboat singing it, and it, wow. that became the story. And then it, suddenly it was re-released as a record, and it came, you know, to the top of the charts. Three, Monty Python, always look on the bright side. All right. Oh, dear. <laughs> the keyboard player who falls to pieces is uh, John Dupre, who wrote Spamalot wow. with Eric. Um, the lead backing singer is Fred Tomlinson, who's on the record. Uh, Andre Jacquemin, who produced a lot of the Python stuff, is on bass on that. And so it was fun. It's all, all Python associates. Uh, George Harrison loved your, the arrangement, didn't he? George Harrison produced the record, yeah. And um, he basically said that, you know... I want the arrangement to be exactly as I wrote it. And he used to sing it to me. <laughs> Amazing. When, when I saw him... So George, wrote, George used to sing to you? Yeah. He, <laughs> he, he didn't say hello. He, there, there's a phrase on strings that I wrote because I thought people are going to get sick of the whistling. So I wrote a little Hollywood-type musical phrase. And that's, that's how he would greet me when he saw me. <laughs> I know that phrase. Wow. But he was lovely. Yeah. He was very supportive. And he had, 
had the record on his jukebox and he would always play it to people. Amazing. So, so that was about 1978? 78, we did that, yeah. So, it seemed, was it um, around that period that you were working as um, band leader for Van Morrison? Yep. <laughs> Don't know how I felt fitted it all in. I was doing the Innis Book of Records and Van and uh, the Rattles. Hot, and hot Chocolate. Hot Chocolate was earlier. Right. 75, I was in Hot Chocolate. 75, 76. <laughs> but that was that was fun, except yeah. having to sing you sexy thing, you sexy thing every night. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't, I mean, it worked when Errol did it, but when I did it, it was just <laughs> not great. But the interesting thing about that was um, our tour promoter was Mel Bush, who had Queen. And they were one day behind us, so they would always be playing at the venue we'd just been at. So every so often we'd be in the same hotel, so we'd hang out. But quite often we'd meet on the motorway at the four in the morning at some dreadful service station, you know, and get the, the plate of food swimming in Greece. It's, yeah. it's fond memories, you know. And I once at the Blue Boar, which was the famous one, I was queuing behind the four tops. <laughs> I'm really not sure what they would have made of <laughs> Got sausage egg and chips. Well, that was it. Well, I, I I went up. I was it was at Salisbury Plain, and um, we were in the queue. It's about three in the morning, and I'm standing with Freddie Mercury and a soldier on manoeuvres with a tree growing out of his back. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely true. <laughs> And I went up to the counter and this very, very bored young lady said, um, yes. I said, uh, eggs, beans and chips, please. And she said, sausage, eggs, beans and chips. I said, well, I don't want the sausage. I said, you have to have it. <laughs> I said, I'm sorry, what, what, what do you mean? She pointed at the sign and it was sausage, eggs, beans and chips. I said, well, I don't want it. She said, well, you've got to have it. <laughs> and I said, well, no, you know. And she said, are you trying to be, make trouble, you know. <laughs> I said, well, no, but could I see your supervisor? So another young lady, older lady came up. Yes, I said the same thing. And she said the same thing. <laughs> and I said, well, look, if I've got to have the sausage, I'll, can I have it on another plate? One plate per order. Okay. Uh, all right, well, I don't want my food to taste of sausage. Why do I have to have a sausage? It, it, it's the law. <laughs> so I go, oh, that, that's interesting. I've never heard of that one. Uh, it's the law. Okay, right. Um, if you give me the sausage, I'm going to give it straight away to somebody out, in, out here. Who wants it? She said, you can't do that. I said, I paid for it. I can, do, I can wear it if I want to. I said, I'm going to call the... I said, look, just give it to me, you know. So she gave me the sausage and I... Who wants the sausage? And there was a truck driver. I'll have it. Scraped it on. She was giving me daggers. All, all this time, Freddie Mercury was on the floor, clutching his side. Help, 
helplessly laughing while the guy with the tree was, was just standing there, completely impassive. <laughs> Blank look on his face. And whenever I saw Freddie Mercury thereafter, I would, I would try not to get him catching my eye. And I'd go up behind him and I'd go, eggs, beans and chips. <laughs> and he wouldn't look around. He would go, sausage, eggs, beans and chips. I said, I don't want the sausage. It's the law. You've got to have it. And everybody, nobody had a clue what we were talking about. So that's my memory of Freddie Mercury. <laughs> I'm struggling. Van Morrison. Okay. From the sublime to the ridiculous, yeah. yes. So I, was, I enjoyed yeah. I enjoyed working with Van. So you were his band leader, were you? I was the band leader, yeah, and the arranger. And basically, when I joined him, he just said, "Do whatever you like with my catalogue. You know, just tell me when to come in." So if I just said, "Oh, you know, uh, Moon Dance is now reggae and it's in waltz <laughs> time," he would have said, "Oh, great. You know, <laughs> thank you." But I had a great time with him. I, I really enjoyed my time. He, he's known as a bit of a hard taskmaster. Uh, Martinet, yes, I think. But he never was with me. We never... Do you think that was respect? I don't really know. I mean, I, I tried to work it out because he once had a go at me, which was very strange. He called me when I was, I was living in Los Angeles and he was playing the Hollywood Bowl. And he rang me and said, do you want to play? And I said, sure, you know. Um, he said, well, but I haven't got a baritone sax. He said, well, you can borrow our guy. And I got to the Hollywood Bowl and walked into his dressing room and he said, you said derogatory things about me in that book. I said, no, I didn't. He said, oh, maybe you were misquoted. Have a drink. And didn't mention playing. And I just went out and sat and watched the, the show. <laughs> and then ne next time I saw him, he was lovely. So I, I, I don't know. <laughs> so George Michael. George so Michael. He he'd heard uh, yourself arranging "Old Devil Called Love," Alison yeah, Moyer. Yeah, Alison Moyer. Yeah. And then he obviously he'd he'd wrote "Kissing Kissing a Fool" and thought that some similar sort of arrangement would work. Is that right? Well, he he rang me at home, which was bizarre, and coincidentally was two days after Paul McCartney rang me at home. So I was sure that it was my friend Mitch who we saw on what, guitar. What, on a wind-up? Winding me up, yeah, because he's, he's brilliant at winding up. And uh, so I was a bit, yeah, 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 Paul, yeah, Paul McCartney, yeah, yeah. George Michael, yeah, sure, <laughs> you know. But he, he said, oh, um, you're the only person who can do this with me. So I said, oh, really? He said, yeah, I've written a song and I love the Alice Moyet record and I want that feeling on this song. It's my first album on my own and I've written this song that I want a sort of 40s type feel but to be modern, you know. So I got a cassette which was just piano, voice and drum machine and I wrote the arrangement and we did take after take after take. <laughs> it must have been 30 takes. And I went home and I just... I. 
I was completely baffled, you know, because you usually get feedback. You know, oh, that's great. Oh, wonderful. He just said, oh, let's do it again. He sang every time in the studio. And I phoned Steve Sidwell, who's also on the album, but wasn't on that track. He wasn't available. And he played with Wham, you know, he toured with Wham, and he worked with George for many years afterwards. And I said, look, I, I just can't fathom him, you know, whether he likes what we're doing or not. And he said, you're going back, aren't you? I said, yeah, we're back tomorrow. He said, then he likes it. I said, oh, okay. He said, because if he didn't like it, he'd just say, it's not working, go home. So we finished it. And I later heard, which I thought was amazing, when he toured the Faith album, he told his band, I'm going to play the backing track from the recording because you guys can't play like these guys. I thought that was amazing. And the, the ironic thing is, I played saxophone on the record. I never do that on my own records because your focus... The ones that you arrange. Yeah. Yeah. When I arrange it, my focus is on does the whole thing sound good? If I'm playing, it's do I sound good? And then you've narrowed your focus right down and you miss the finer points. But this one I agreed to play on. I don't know why. Well, it's a good job, isn't it? Well, it's great and... But you, it's it, my only credit, yeah, because exactly. they, they, left, <laughs> they left the credit off that I arranged it, because it says arranged by George Michael, George Michael bass, George Michael piano. And I go, no, hang on a minute, that's Jeff Klein on bass and Mick Pine on piano, it's not George at all. And I don't know whether he did it or his manager did it, but in those days I didn't have the manager that I have now who would have come in like a bull in a china shop and said, get the right credit on that record so i've got a credit that's all right and i just got a, pla a diamond disc wow 10 million sales in america alone wow unbelievable so that's sort of pride of place now wow well, i think we've got a we've got a clip of it but you are the i think you are the hidden man on the video clip this time i'll tell you the story about the oh. video <laughs> all right <laughs> So um, George's office rang me and said, uh, we want to shoot the video on Thursday. And I was in the middle of recording a commercial. So I phoned every, I sort of excused myself from the mix and phoned every person on the record, who of course are all sort of aging jazzers, you know. And uh, I got everyone. So I phoned the office and said... Uh, Right, all systems go, we're all set, we've got everyone for Thursday. He said, oh, he's changed his mind, he wants to do it on Monday. Uh, oh, God. So I said, right, here are the numbers, call them. And, of course, they wound up using his own band, who looked much better than we ever did. <laughs> <laughs> so I recognised Chris Cameron and Dion Estes. And, um, but the funny story, the, the drummer is now one of the top studio and live drummers, Ian Thomas who plays with everybody, you know, Dire Straits, every, everyone. And it was his first recording session I asked wow. him for. And we were playing at the Edinburgh Jazz Festival. And I got the call a couple of days before. So I went up, they fixed the session date. So I went up to Ian and Jeff and Mick Pine at the bar. 
And I said, um, are you guys free on Wednesday? And everyone went, yes, 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 yes. Great session, session. I found out later that Ian Thomas was about to say no because he was doing a summer season with Scylla Black. <laughs> and Jeff kicked him under, <laughs> under the table. Are you free? I went, are you free? Yep, no, yeah, no, yes. <laughs> but the corollary to that, which is one of my favourite stories of all time, Ian Thomas was doing the pantomime. Uh, I think it was Jack and the Beanstalk with Scylla Black. And it came to the point where Jack, principal boy, Ella, Fitz, uh, Ella Fitzgerald, Scylla Black, had to kill the giant. And she pulled the sword from the scabbard. And it broke. So she was holding the handle. <laughs> so she ad-libbed, oh no, boys and girls, how am I going to kill the giant now? And somebody in the audience went, why don't you try singing to him? <laughs> Got to follow this up, haven't I? My favourite story. <laughs> Bjork. Yes. So you arranged It's So Quiet. Yeah. I did indeed. Yeah. So that, that was originally by, was it Bet Betty Hutton? Betty Hutton, yes. Yeah. With whom I appeared on stage at the Palladium at the age of three. What, Betty? Yes. Wow. <laughs> so you've got, a con you've got a direct connection a direct to the connection original to version the original of version, it. Yeah. Wow. Very strange. But again, I got a phone call from um, my booker saying Bjork wants to do this track. Um, it's completely different from anything she's ever done. Uh, are you available? And I was, so I, I did the arrangement. And recording sessions are in three-hour slugs, 10 to 1, 2 to 5, 3 to 6. There's an orchestra. Yeah. Yeah. So we had, I guess, about 20 players, you know, a big band. And they were all dotted in the studio, and we rehearsed it, and we got all the notes right and everything. And it was about quarter past 10, 20 past 10, and she's not there. So I go in the control room, and I said to <coughs> Nellie Hooper, the producer, uh, any word on where she is? She said, oh, she's looking for her shoes. As soon as she's got them, she'll be here. Okay, fine. 10 to 11, 11 o'clock, 11.30, quarter to 12, 12 o'clock, 12.15, 12.30, quarter to one, she comes in. And she skips up to me. I, I don't know if you've ever experienced a 35-year-old <laughs> skipping towards you, but it's quite, quite disconcerting. <laughs> so she, she skips up to me and she says, Hello! What are we doing? And I said, well, what we're doing is losing everyone in 15 minutes. I said, well, oh, I thought they were here all day. I said, no, they, they've all got work to do. They can't stay. It's now or never, almost. She said, right, we'd better do it then. She went into the vocal booth. Four minutes later, we had the finished record. First take, she sang live. Nothing was ever done to it after that. So when people say, well, you know, how long did it take to record It's So So Quiet? Oh, I say, well, how long is the record? You know, that's how long it took. She, she, went, she went missing at Top of the Pops when you were... Oh, when we her. did Top of the Pops, they couldn't find her. 
and um, they were uh, searching the whole building, you know, and we were, we were obviously waiting to go on. And then somebody said, I found her, I found her. And she was in the car park, listening to the ground. <laughs> she was lying on, on the ground with her head. Okay. <laughs> she marches to her own tune. But she's lovely. But um, eccentric, I think, is it's possibly one word, yeah. one word for it. So we've got, we've got a, a clip of you and Bjork on top of the pops. Blimey. 1995. Where did you find that? <laughs> it's probably on YouTube. Everything's on YouTube. <laughs> Everything's on YouTube, yeah. Where are you? Two things I remember about that appearance. Um... I was very excited to be on Top of the Pops again because I hadn't been on there for about 20 years, I think. Well, other than well that, apart from the Python, yeah. yeah. I thought, it's great. I'm going to be with all the cutting-edge current pop acts, you know. Uh, so I arrived at the BBC at Elstree, walked in, and there was Slade. <laughs> <laughs> I said, you were here last time I was here. What was going and then John Peel was doing it much to his embarrassment and I'd known him since the, the 60s and he's oh god I've got new kids on the block and <laughs> a load of rubbish and thank heavens you're here you know and at the end of I think this number was a was about number four I think and number one came on and then Michael Aspel came out of nowhere with This Is Your Life, John Peel. Oh, wow. Like, and wow. I could see his face just go, oh, no. <laughs> As if introducing Top of the Pops wasn't bad enough. He's, <laughs> he's now got to sit through his whole life story. That was funny. So before we go to the break, because Reb, Reb's given me a nudge, I want to very, very quickly cover one last uh, clip. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, is it Goldeneye? So oh, you've got an association yeah. with James Bond, and there's a very famous uh, tank chase. Yeah. So you, you were, uh, was it scored, arranged? It was, no, it was, I, I'd done a film which was very successful called Leon with um, Gary Oldman and uh, Jean Renault, with Luke Besson directing, and I'd arranged it for um, Eric Serra, the French composer, and they were rebooting Bond with Pierce Brosnan, who I got his first film role, but that's another story. <laughs> as, you, uh, as you do. Threw it away, as you do. But, um, so they wanted a new take on the music, so they hired Eric, and I was his arranger and conductor. And it became very apparent during the first playthrough that they actually didn't want him at all. They wanted traditional James Bond, and they weren't getting it. And it became a complete impasse. And he, this was the big scene that they had all their, you know, this is the one that's going to make James Bond come back to life. And they hated the music that he'd written. I mean, it, it was... Um, I don't think it was bad. It just wasn't what they thought they were going to get. So I got a phone call on Friday morning saying, can I come to Pinewood? And I turned to uh, my friend who was with me and I said, I bet it's a tank chase. And I got there, it was a tank chase. So I said to them, look, you don't 
A, I'm not doing it unless you call Eric and ask him if it's okay, because he brought me on the film. And the producer said, well, we, we're going to do it anyway, so it may as well be you. Okay. So I saw it on Friday afternoon. I wrote it on Saturday. Wow. It, I arranged it on Sunday. Gosh. It was copied on Monday. We recorded it on Tuesday. It was dubbed on Wednesday, and the film came out the following Friday. <laughs> <laughs> My God. And it was so late in the day, I didn't get a credit on screen. Hidden again. man, hidden man again. But back to that. But it was the beginning of the internet, and there were a lot of James Bond, you know, forums on the early internet. There still are. And it got out that I'd done it, you know, so people were writing, why does it say Eric Sarah? It's not Eric Sarah, you know. But um, I really enjoyed it, and it was, I thought, great, I've done a bomb film, I'll take that off. They're never going to want me again, forget it, you know. And then uh, two years ago, I got a call from Hans Zimmer saying, would I do all the brass? So I was suddenly on No Time to Die, which was amazing. So I did the Cuban chase and the motorbike chase and the ident at the beginning of the film and all the brass in, in the film I are conducted. Wow. So, yeah, but this one I wrote from scratch. I incorporated Monty Norman's theme, obviously, but then I wrote some of it myself. And Monty sang in my band, bizarrely. <laughs> oh, gosh. And he thanked me for doing this because he said I'd have sued them if, if it had because there was a contractual thing that the Bond theme had to be in the film for a certain number of minutes, and it wasn't. So my putting it in here boosted the minutes so you didn't have to sue them. <laughs> the things you do, honestly. Subtle scene. <laughs> The funny thing about that shot, very quickly, when the two cars get crushed, the police cars, the censors said, you can't make it look like they've been killed. So they had to jump out the car. Afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> like, if, if a tank crushed my car, I would not be jumping out of the car. <laughs> and then the statue comes on top of the... It, it's, it's completely insane, but it's great fun. Is that all right, Rev? <laughs> well, uh, uh, fucking hell. Um, it's not often I'm lost for words, but uh, uh, first of all, what a job he's done keeping him in check. Jason Barnard. I feel sorry for George Michael because we've said fuck all about him. <laughs> I think we need a break, don't we? Yeah. Mr. John Oldman. After listening to the record, we had a post-album discussion and a bit of a Q&A. Who's going to kick off then? Come on, Richie, you've got a James Bond question, haven't you? <laughs> you've been waiting, waiting, haven't you? Uh, hello, John. Hiya. Um, I just wondered what, what were the most, what were the more enjoyable experience doing Goldeneye or No Time to Die? They were, they were both enjoyable. I mean, it, 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 if, if I had a bucket list, you know, 
doing a Bond film would be on it. And doing two James Bond yeah. films is like yeah. the icing on the cake. Yeah. Um, this one there was less pressure because, uh, A, I wasn't, I mean, I was just arranging music and putting in my own ideas. And the hands just took every single one. You know, it wasn't, I overwrote deliberately because I thought, you know, well, you can leave out what you don't like. And they put it all in. So yeah. it was really nice. It was, uh, and it was just before lockdown, we finished. Yeah. Literally, I think a week before lockdown. Yeah. So it was, um, it was great. Goldeneye was more fraught because, as I say, they, they wanted to be bold and change the, the style of the Bond music. Yeah. And then they realised they didn't at all. Yeah. Um, it, it's quite controversial, actually. It was it's, very controversial. Because it's more electronic and the, the more John Barry sound, I think, from 80s, yeah. obviously, left in Living Daylights, 87. Well, also the problem, Eric was very young and all he'd ever done was films with Luke Besson. And Luke and Eric were at school together. So everything Eric wrote, Luke just put in the film. And he never came to a session. All the time we worked on... Uh, Leon and the film called Atlantis. Luke never showed up. Funnily enough, he came to Goldeneye. <laughs> it's bizarre. But um, Eric, being 24 years old and French, you know, was very obstreperous. I do it my way. Yeah, and that reason it. with him. Yeah. No compromise. And they eventually they stopped talking to him. They only talked to me. And I had to phone my agent and say, I don't know why they're talking to me. I'm just a rearranger. It's nothing to do with me. I just, I just write what I'm given to write. But then, as I say, that sequence came up, which they were very, just not happy with at all. And I got to do it, which was, you know, great. So I had a, I had a James Bond moment, which is... It's very iconic. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Good evening, John. Hi thank, there. Thank you for sharing your stories of your fantastic life. My, my Amazing. Uh, quite amazing. I just wanted to go back to the 60s when you were talking about being around the clubs with John Mayle and the Cream and Led mm -hmm. Zeppelin. One of my favourite um, sax players, I wonder whether you did anything with him, was Johnny Armand. When I he knew played you were going to say that. With <laughs> John Mayle. Turning point, his sax playing on that Funnily, is absolutely fantastic. It's very strange because we used to get mistaken for each other, and um, I would get credited for things that he'd done, and he'd get credited for things that I'd done. And we talked about it, we had a good laugh, and I, I sort of said, Well, that won't happen anymore, you know, because it's obvious who you are and who I am. And I got to Hollywood to start working on films and there's a very, very fine Oscar-winning composer in Hollywood called John Ottman and Americans pronounce my name Ottman. <laughs> so I started getting phone calls from people saying, I'm really sorry, I can't do your session on Tuesday and I'm, what have I missed? You know, what session have I got that I didn't know I had? And it turned out to be John Ottman so I hadn't actually got away from that at all. And he... He actually um, offered to take out a contract on me. But I think he, I think he was joking. And then, of course, there's John Altman in EastEnders, who we talked about. And he's not really John Altman. His, his name is Simpson. But he changed it because when you join Equity, if there's another John Altman, i.e. me, you can't have that name. 
So he became John. No, sorry, I'm, I'm getting that wrong, aren't I? I had to be John Neville Rufus Altman when I appeared in the film because he'd taken John Altman. That's the way around it worked. Do you know what happened to Johnny Altman? Because he, he was he passed. Away. He went to live in the States. Yeah. I... And he passed away about five years ago, I'd say. Five, six years ago. But um, he was a great player. There, there were three or four great sax players on the scene then. There was... Um, I'm, I'm talking about the rock scene rather than the jazz scene. There was uh, Chris Mercer, who actually got me the gig in Hot Chocolate because he didn't want to do it. And I reconnected with him. He lives in America now. He was in John Mayles' Blues Breakers. And I said, oh, I have to thank you for my career. You know, that phone call changed my life. And he said, well, I'm delighted, but I don't remember calling you. And I don't remember being offered that gig. <laughs> So I start doubting whether that actually... It must have happened, because they wouldn't have got in touch with me otherwise. But um, there are a few... And Art Thiemann, who, funnily enough, is depping for me tomorrow uh, with Zoot Money. I uh, play quite regularly with Zoot Money's big roll band. And I just thought it'd be a bit too much, because I had my big band out last night in Henley, and then came up here today. So by the time I get home, I'd be good for nothing at my age. <laughs> Good evening, John. Uh, Hi there. The first session was absolutely brilliant, and you put you got loads of names in, which yes. was, but but the one you actually managed to throw in really quickly was Paul McCartney rang me. Can, can you expand on that, please? I can. <laughs> I got a phone call, and it was Paul McCartney. I, I was really shy. This is a week before George Michael rang me, and he said I. I'm looking for a new George Martin to take charge. It was just after he'd done Give My Regards to Broad Street, which was a disaster, and partly a disaster because he was surrounded by yes people. You know, yes, Paul, whatever you say. Oh, it's great, Paul. Oh, it's wonderful. And he, he really trusted all this nonsense, you know, about how great he was. And he really wanted somebody just to say, Paul, this song stinks. And I thought... I say that, I'll be out the door, you know, before I finish the sentence. But one thing he did, when, when I got there, I went up to, um, it was MPL in Soho, and you go up to the fifth floor, which is the rarefied Paul McCartney atmosphere, and one of his assistants said, um, Paul won't be long, he's going over his new video. Um, would you like to read this in the meantime? And shoved a magazine in my hand which I assume would be Time or Newsweek or, uh, you know, Billboard or something like that. It was the Paul McCartney fan club magazine. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm sitting there sort of, leap, oh, you know, <laughs> Linda's got a new hedgehog, you know. Oh, great, you know. And uh, they then, um, somebody came out and said, Paul, we'll see you now. And I threw the magazine on the table and if looks could kill I think this guy would have assassinated me but what I found, I mean I just found Paul went round in circles, you know, and I could just see I, I, was, I had a good career going where I was doing a lot of BBC drama the odd feature film many commercials I mean about 4,000 under my belt 
He's, he's Mr. Sheila's Wheels. I am. I wrote Sheila's Wheels. I also, for my sins, wrote You Can Do It When You Be and Cure It. But, uh, I get terribly upset when people introduce me like that. I think, you know, at least talk about Titanic or Rod Stewart or Prince or something, you know, you be and cure it. No, I had a great time. The thing about commercials was, I'm digressing a bit here, but... Please do. The commercials I worked on were directed by people like Ridley Scott, Alan Parker, Adrian Lyon, David Bailey, Terence Donovan, John Frankenheimer, great film directors. And my lyricist was Salman Rushdie. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. We have a wonderful time those far off days with Anchor, which to the tune of the day trip to Bangor. That, that was one we did, and fresh cream cakes, naughty but nice. And uh, the Burnley Building Society is obviously a very successful commercial because I've never, never heard of them again. But um, no, I, I love doing commercials. Why did I get onto commercials? Oh, Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney. I'll go back to Paul McCartney. So, I was also doing... Trevor Horn used me as one of his main arrangers. So, regularly I would be doing maybe Rod Stewart, The Pretenders, uh, Simple Minds, um, Tim Turner, Barry White. Because he was on a big streak of great hit records. And they really were fabulous records. So I was doing all Trevor's work. And Paul's thing was just... I thought it's going to be a a 24-hour-a-day thing and it's going to take me away from all these other things. Because I was also... I I really spread myself very thin. I also... I don't know if you remember a show on ITV called... Well, it was originally Friday Night Live and then it became Saturday Night Live. And it was Ben Elton and Harry Enfield and... And I was the music producer on the show. So I was saying to Jason before, I think I was just an intermediary between the, the punk bands and the triple-barreled Oxbridge graduates who, who produced the programme. You know, I say, would you chaps play this? And in fact, I produced the Moody Blues one week and the producer came and said, I want you to play Nights in White Satin and this track from your new album. And Graham, the drummer, said, but that's five minutes long. I said, yes. He said, I can't play that long. <laughs> uh, oh, OK, it's a big, big discussion. What they agreed was they were going to mime their new record and play Nights in White Satin. So off they went with Nights in White Satin, which everybody knows. And the flute player couldn't play it. Ray Thomas. Ray, yeah. He kept messing it up. And he was making a very simple mistake that flute players make, which is when you play a D on the flute in the middle octave, you lift up that finger. That's it. And that makes the note sound. But if you do that, it comes out horribly wrong. And he kept doing it. And I'm I'm friendly with Justin Hayward, and we were sitting there. And I said, Justin, is he ever going to get this right? You know, because it's take 42 and there's no, nowhere near it. And he said, no, he won't. And I said, well, 
I used to play the flute. Oh, and he said, well, you do it then. So I go into the studio and he's standing there and he's already said to his roadie, it's not working, get me another flute. And the roadie had gone out to the van and brought another flute in. It was exactly the same happening. So I, I went in, I thought, how do I do this without embarrassing him and, you know, upsetting him? And I said, oh, is that a Haynes flute? And he said, do you play the flute? I said, well, I, I used to. He said, you play the bloody thing then. <laughs> so I hadn't played the flute for years. I, I played the solo, which he mimed to. And of course, it's shown up on YouTube. <laughs> it's, it's up, if you look at... Your the, solo. Yeah, it's me playing the flute solo that everybody knows, but he's miming it on, on the top. <laughs> but it was, it was a great thing, because I, I also did all the variety shows that used to be on ITV. So when they opened Liverpool Docks, or they, they went up to New Brighton to do a... You know, Frankie Goes to Hollywood and Spandau Ballet and Shaka Khan. And I even produced Run DMC and Cameo and... Shaka and oh, it was amazing, you know. And I did all these spectaculars. I'd be conducting the damned in a white tail suit. Well, Elo Eloise. Eloise, yeah, wow. with the Royal Philharmonic wow. Orchestra. With, again, it's up there on YouTube. You know, you see me. Go... <laughs> and then, oh, but it, the funniest thing, um, we <laughs> we finished um, the the show with the damned. This is absolutely true story. And it was the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra with the Damned. <laughs> and it came out great. Although when we came out of the studio, they came out of one room, the orchestra came out of the other, and Hilda Ogden came out of the middle <laughs> with the curlers, it, all at the same time. Wonderful. But anyway, um, so uh, um, I'm, in, I'm in the bar with Dave Vanyan from the Damned, and he's going to me because he knew that I did a lot of TV. And one thing I did on television was all the Miss Marples with Joan Hicks. And, and he said, I always thought that Margaret Rutherford was the quintessential <laughs> yeah. Miss Marple. But then I saw Joan Hicks, and, and she brings a certain quality to the... And while, <laughs> while he's doing this, the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic are on deck on this boat, throwing things in the water... And sort of throwing, and I'm going, this is the wrong way around, you know. This... <laughs> you know I've got the punk telling me about Miss Marple and the, the, the classical orchestra are sort of heaving themselves over the side of the boat. Anyway, that, that's a digression from Paul McCartney. <laughs> Sorry about that. Anybody else got another rabbit hole to go down? <laughs> John, according to that um, noted organ of truth, Wikipedia, your, oh God, yeah. <laughs> your, your only musical training is piano lessons as a young lad. Yeah, it's and true. It just kind of beggars belief that you've had a career in music. Tell me about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't get it at all. So, ca can you read the dots? Is that yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I wasn't no, being no, facetious. I... I mean, it just beggars belief how you've managed to... I know. I, I could literally sit, sit on a plane or sit here with a score and write an orchestral arrangement and know exactly what it's going to sound like. Good. Don't need a piano, don't need any, any instruments anywhere nearby. 
And it's got to be a family gift because yeah. my uncles yeah. could both do that. My my cousin, although he does read music and was taught, is the most incredible drummer. He's been with Toto. Well, he's yeah. left them now. But uh, you talk to anybody who plays drums and you mention Simon Phillips and they all go yeah. gaga, you know. Oh, he's the greatest. Oh, he's amazing. So it's a whole, fa it's a family thing, I think. Yeah, yeah. And I was just very lucky. I, I could always hear, even when I was seven, if you played a record, I could hear what was going on. And I could yeah, tell you, oh, yeah. you know, there was a bassoon there and it's playing along with the cellos, but it stops. And then the flute and clarinet are in octaves, unisons. And so m one of my earliest writing gigs was for the BBC. And I, what I would do was takedowns, and takedowns are when generally American artists came over to do the two Ronnies or Parkinson or one of the shows. They wouldn't bring music. Uh, they they probably didn't have any because um, you know I I wrote for Don Williams, the country singer. He came from Nashville. Um, somebody had done a string session. He didn't even know who did it. You know, he couldn't tell me. Yeah. So I would get a cassette and I would write down what I heard and then I'd adapt it for whatever the show was, which was great. So I did the stylistics. I did Don Williams, Telly Savalas, which was a, a story. Yeah. <laughs> it's wonderful. Kojak, tell us. Kojak. Well, I loved him. He was a lovely man. And we were going to do Parkinson. He had a single out. Well, he had a single that was number one. Was that If? If. But he followed it up with a song called Some Broken Hearts Never Mend, which is what I, I took down. And I met him and we got on like a house. He told me incredible stories that I'd never heard. I have to tell you one. I'm sorry, the rabbit hole. <laughs> He's doing a film that I'm sure you've seen, The Dirty Dozen. Yeah. Great film. Warner Brothers insisted that Trini Lopez, the singer who did If I Had a Hammer, was in the film because he would sing the title song. So it turned out that he was the biggest pain of anybody on the whole set. He didn't know his lines. He couldn't hit his mark. He complained about everything. He wanted a trailer like 10 sizes bigger and... After one really fraught day of filming at the end of the week, Robert Aldrich, the director, just turned round to his script editor and went, for Christ's sake, kill him tomorrow. <laughs> uh, if, you, if you watch The Dirty Dozen, he's gone. <laughs> you know, they jump on the parachute and he gets killed. That's the yeah. end of him. Anyway, back to telly. Um, <laughs> We're doing Parkinson, and he, he comes in and he says, John, he says, I know I can't sing. You know I can't sing. Why should they know I can't sing? <laughs> and he bailed. So I'm there doing nothing. Um, I'm there to, just to conduct for him. And I'm sitting at the back, and the um, floor manager comes over and says, oh, as long as you're here, would you conduct... Uh, as time goes by, for Ingrid Bergman, who's the other guest. Oh, wow. Wow. And I said, yeah, fine, I'd love to. So I'm sitting backstage, and Telly's chatting, and 
backstage at TV studios, as you probably know, I mean, in those days, cigarette butts and coffee cups and wires. And I'm just sitting there waiting to be called. And I've two hands on my shoulder. And I look around and it's Ingrid Bergman. And she says, um, do you mind if I sit with you? And I said, no, 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 no. And I get up. And she says, no, 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 you stay there. And she grabs a chair and brings it over, sits down. Says, I get very nervous doing chat shows. Uh, why, are you, why are you here? And I said, well, I'm here to conduct for Telly Savalas, but he doesn't want to go on. So she said, oh, that's terrible. I said, but they've asked me to conduct your, as time goes by, in your honour. She said, oh, that's wonderful. She said, I get very nervous, so when I come on, on the play-on, I'll give you a big smile, and that will calm me down. I, okay, lovely. So I go out on stage, and the floor manager says, oh, for her play-on, will you sit at the piano, and Harry Stoneham will conduct, and then we'll swap you over when she's chatting, and they do as time goes by. Oh, great. So I'm sitting at the piano, which is facing that way, and the stairs are behind me. And I, I suddenly thought, she's not going to see me, because my back is turned. So I did sort of, I couldn't go that way, because, it, you know, I was on camera. So I sort of went like this, and she came on. I, I had no idea whether anything happened. And we did the song, and went in the green room. She said, oh, I gave you a big smile, and this strange man stared at me like I was mad. <laughs> and I, put me off, and... Anyway, it was all fine. But I, I, later I got a recording of the Parkinson show and I freeze-framed that moment when she smiles at my back because she recognised that it was me. So I got a photo of Ingrid Bergman smiling at my... <laughs> but that, they were great days because you, you, you would get called by a record company or the BBC. And I, I used to get the cast-offs really the cast-offs that none of the other arrangers wanted. So I would get all the reggae and the funk because they were all dance band people, you know, from the 30s. And I was this young guy. Oh, you give it to him. So I, the top of the pops band go, well, this is all wrong. The bass drum's on the wrong beat. I said, no, it's reggae. That's what they, <laughs> that's how it goes. And then the reggae singers would come over from Jamaica and they'd say, these, these guys don't know what they're doing. I actually saw Michael Jackson in tears because the band were ruining one of the Jackson's hits, you know, so no funk and no soul, and he was, he was, Ooh, I can't stand this. Talking of uh, film stars, you met Charlie Chaplin, didn't you? I did meet Charlie Chaplin. That's a weird story as well. <laughs> <laughs> when I left university, I, I sort of decided that I wanted to write a book about British cinema in the 30s. I don't know why, but... Um, so I went... I, I didn't know what... I, I, the last thing on my mind was to go into music. So I applied for a job as a capital radio producer before they started, and I got fired before they started. <laughs> I was going to produce the Dirk Bogard show. Whatever happened to that? That never happened. Um, but then... I was writing this book, so I was at the Film Institute screening rooms, and I would sit there and watch these terrible B-movies, I mean, awful British films that might now pop up on Talking Pictures, but then 
Nobody had ever seen In fact, one caught fire while we were watching. <laughs> and uh, there was a lot of activity in the cutting room. Uh, so I said, what's going on? It's something happening. And they said, we can't tell you. I said, okay. I said, but stick around. And I said, oh, uh, I've had enough. You know, two films today. I want to go home. I said, trust me, it'd be worth it. Okay, well, I'll just meld into the back, which I did. And in comes Charlie Chaplin with his family and Claire Bloom and wow. Robert Vaughan. And he shows Limelight, which hadn't been seen then for like 20-something years, that he pulled because the reviews were so bad. And he was showing it to his family for the first time. And he was doing a running commentary as he was screening it. So the scene with Buster Keaton, you go, watch Buster, watch Buster, to the family. I'll never forget that. And my friend Jeff was there with me, and at the end I shook his hand, uh, but he got his autograph. I, I, was, I wasn't brave enough to ask for an autograph. And of course we didn't have cameras. That's the bugbear of those days, you know. If only. Well, I, I've got photos of me with Peter Green. They, they popped up, because it was a pretty high-profile gig, I think. 40 years later, I suddenly saw the, these photos, you know, which is great. So maybe they're out there, just never never seen them. What can we say? <laughs> can I, shall I ask the final question of the night? Go on then. Will you come back next year? <laughs> <laughs> what, what will you do, John? Will you pick an album or shall we have a night with, um, there's no point having a bloody album, is there? <laughs> What a, what a stupid question. I think an evening. An evening. Yeah. Yeah. An evening with the great man himself. You better start doing your research for next year. <laughs> Never mind going away this weekend to Filey. What a great job he's done tonight. That's brilliant. And a thunderous round of applause, Mr. John Olman. Yes. Thank you. Good night, God bless you, and happy trails.